Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome, folks, to another uh, special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Great to have you back. We've been having some really amazing episodes over the last few weeks. Each one seems to get better. Thanks for uh, sending me an email. If you want to send me an email, Blackson at kooplaxon.com. Always love hearing from you and what you've been receiving from uh, the Soul Talk podcast and really how you've been implementing the things you've been learning, practical life wisdoms into your life. Uh, today's episode is going to be another special one. I'm really excited to interview my guest today. He's a national New York Times, nationally best-selling author, award-winning journalist. He's one of the world's leading experts on high performance. The author of an amazing book, Stealing Fire, which you may have read, was a national bestseller, nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, the author of The Rise of Superman, uh, two books that I really, really, really love, uh, Bold and Abundance with Peter Diamandis, two of my favorite books, really inspiring. If you haven't checked those out, make sure you, you take a read of those. And uh, he has an amazing new book coming out, which I haven't read. I think it comes out anytime now, Last Tango in Cyberspace. It's a novel, so I can't wait to, to check that out. Welcome to the Soul Talk podcast. Stephen Kotler. Stephen, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Thanks for coming on, man. I'm a big fan. Love your work. Love your books. And, uh, you know, I have a bunch of questions on flow and things I want to ask. And I even checked out your website the other day. And I saw this amazing, like, writer's seminar you're doing. And I'm bummed that I'm going to be traveling in Bali, Indonesia. But you're doing some amazing stuff. And I have some questions on writing. I want to flow into that. But, you know, there might be a few folks that don't know a bit about your background. I always like to get a bit of a, a context. And so I'm curious, you know, you're a writer, journalist, you've written God knows how many, you know, New York Times best-selling books. And what was your path to being a writer? You know, writing, I wrote a, a, a book uh, a couple of years ago, and it was a, it's a hard part, at least for me, a hard path, a hard endeavor. So I'm just curious, was it something you always wanted to do? Was it? Yeah, was it, it was something I, I mean, okay. since I, was, I wrote my first poem at four years old. Um, four. The tricky part was I grew up in, uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And this was, you know, at a time, you know, before the internet, before cable TV. Like the, I didn't know any writer. Like the idea of, of being a writer was sort of like I woke up one day and was like, okay, tomorrow I'll be an elf. And there was just no path, right? So I sort of had to make it up all as I as I went along for a while. Um, but I did always want to be a writer. Mm. So you wrote your first poem. You said about four. I mean, yeah. I, 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 you just woke up one day and it just there it was. No, my, I well, my grandmother know. was a poet. Well, okay, so my grandmother mm. wrote what were probably like really bad Hallmark greeting card poems. And mm. 
I just had this memory at, at age four of just doing a ripoff of one of her poems. But I was in a, it was in a little green notebook that I had for years until my uh, my folks moved and they lost it. But I had the I had the poem for years afterwards. Mm. It was a little boy and blue ripoff. Did you just keep like Did you just keep writing to the point where you just got to the point? Where I wrote just, uh, by the time I was by the time I was in high school. I was writing every day, um, and I was still mm. writing. Uh, poetry, though I was writing some short stories. And it wasn't, at that time, I had a friend, my, my, my best friend in eighth grade had an older brother who was writing sci-fi books. He was maybe in 10th grade. And, mm. you know, at the time, it, we were just a bunch of geeks playing Dungeons and Dragons and into martial arts and a whole bunch of stuff like that. And it was, Mike wrote sci-fi books and it was just another thing he did. So it like, it was never kind of as daunting to me, I guess. Um, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, by the time, you know, my senior thesis in high school was a was a collection of, I don't know, 50 poems uh, in college. Um, I got a bunch of degrees, but one of them is in English and creative writing and uh, went to grad school for creative writing uh, at Johns Hopkins. And I'm actually trained as a novelist um, and then fell into magazine journalism as a way to kind of pay the bills as I was writing my novels. And that really stuck with me. I, I, I turned out, uh, I loved being a journalist and I was, a, and I was very good at it, um, which was fun. A lot of, I'd been a bartender through college and, and into grad school. And a lot of the skills you need as a bartender, being able to talk to anybody, being able to kind of engage anybody in conversation, all that stuff really, um, came into play when I was a journalist and it really helped out. And I think a lot of folks want to write or you know, whether it's right or, because I think writing is, on, at least I associate writing with, with being somewhat creative. And so, you know, it's like, I think some people might think, well, you just, you're either born with this creative gift or or not, you just don't have it. And and for the longest time, I've always said, ah, I'm not a writer, I hate writing, and, and, and I find it so hard. But have you found, I know you studied the performance and flow, I want to get into flow in a second, but in terms of writing, in terms of creativity, is, is it, is, is, is it like a... Yes, is it, yes. Is, is it, is it, is it a massively tradable? Yeah, it's a massively... Yeah. Okay, yes and. Well, and we'll get to the and mm. in a half a sec. But the vast majority of it is a massively trainable skill. And it's time mm. in, the, in the chair more than anything else. Now, let me also preface that by saying I think very few people actually know how to train writers. Um, I, what I what I do in the workshop that you mentioned is radically different from what anybody else does. I will first I break down the neuroscience of language. Here's how language works in your brain. Here's how engagement works in the brain. When you're reading a page turning book, there's neuroscience underneath that. If you understand the neuroscience, it's an advantage. So all that stuff comes into play as well. Where so here's the here's the caveat. The thing that is not that that is sort of innate. Uh, on a certain level, is rhythm and language, right? Sort of like dancing. Some people have rhythm, mm -hmm. some people don't. You can train it, but it's hard. And you can usually always tell a natural from somebody who's been trained um, as a general rule. Same thing with writing. There is a fundamental understanding of how rhythm works in language um, that is really hard to train. Now, you can get there, most people never get there because you learn it by, I had an enormous advantage. I didn't realize it, but I had an enormous advantage because I started out as a poet. 
So one of the things you learn as a poet, for example, is mm. you can take a word, blue, and then you can put a word next to it, orange. And it does something different than if you put the word blizzard next to it or if you put the word snow cone next to it. Or, and you just start to get a sense of, oh, wow, I can create emotional effects by putting language together in interesting ways. And that's an advantage. That's a hard thing to learn. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a total skill. In fact, I'll give you an example of, of, of like how I – one of the reasons I believe I was very successful early on is – not a lot of people are funny in writing. A lot of people are funny out loud. It's easier to be funny out loud than it is in writing. Um, and I decided that that was going to be an advantage I wanted. So I went out and got books by Douglas Adams, Woody Allen, the funniest people I could think of, the funniest books I could find. And I diagrammed out how they told their jokes. Where did the setup go? Where was the punchline? How did they go A to B? What jokes all work by surprise. So how are you building that surprise? How you do it out loud, very different than how you do it in writing, mm. um, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, very trainable, very trainable mm. skill. And um, mm. we've had, like, you know, at, at the, I've had enormous luck with students sort of coming into, uh, most of the people who come to my workshop are people who are, you know, dying to get a book out and they don't quite, yeah. they've got, have, they've got the project. They don't, can't get through it for whatever reason. And we have an incredibly high success rate of people coming out the other end and, you know, put, finishing that book and getting it published and getting it out in the world, which is kind of cool. So, yeah, in I think it's trainable. In, in terms of, let's say, someone who doesn't want to be a writer, but they're like, Steve, I want to just, uh, I'd like to be a little more creative in my life. You know, I want to make, uh, I want to feel more aliveness, joy through creativity. Are there things that you found? Yeah, creativity is also trainable. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a simple example. Um, and uh, this, this comes out of, out of flow science as well. But mm -hmm. we have your brain has a built-in pattern detection system, right? Pattern recognition system. Uh -huh. In fact, what most of your neurons do at a very basic level is detect patterns. So, and this is, mm -hmm. you know, this is innate. This is everybody. This is what brains do. So if you want to be creative, the mechanism is built in. How to use the mechanism is what you have to work on. And one of the problems people have, and we, we have this a lot in the modern world because people specialize more and more. So for you to really get those creative juices flowing, you need to sort of connect. It, it's not enough to connect an idea that's sitting right next to another idea, right? Like it's really closely related. It's almost a logical leap. You get it. That's not a big creative leap. Creative leaps are far-flung connections between loosely related ideas. Just one example of, of mm. outside-the-box thinking, that kind of thing. If you yeah. are only learning inside your discipline, you're not creating enough space between incoming information and older ideas for that actually to be really big kind of aha pattern recognition moments. So one of the things I train people to do is to read 25 to 50 pages a day in a nonfiction book. Uh, and, it, and I emphasize, I'm not, I won't go into why, but let's just say books and nonfiction books have more information density per page than any other source of information. So you're getting the most, mm -hmm. most maximum amount of information for your time and 25 to 50 pages a day outside your discipline, kind of at the far edge of your curiosity. Your brain is mm -hmm. going to take the incoming information that you're learning about, say, race car driving, and it's going to start yeah. find connections with your day job as a lawyer. And that sounds really weird, mm -hmm. but that's what the brain does. It does it automatically. It connects ideas mm -hmm. together. That's how it builds networks. So one of the 
best ways to actually start training creativity is to start reading, learning farther away from yourself than you normally read or learn. Does that make sense? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. That's really cool. I think it will start. I guess, why is it so difficult for us to, I mean, it sounds simple and I think it's right on because I've experienced that myself. Um, I actually experience a lot of that when I travel outside of my normal routines and typical sure. you know, novelty. Novelty yes. will do that, right? Right. And this, these are all flow triggers, by the way. We're all playing with mm. all these things that we're talking about are actually drivers of the state of haunt, the peak performance state known as flow that I study. Right. They also work that mm. way. So this is this is kind of creativity and flow overlap a lot, and, and flow oh, yeah. has a very large impact on creativity. Um, we've been doing, uh, at the Flow Research Collective, we've been doing an ongoing I think it's going, uh, project with uh, Mike Gervais' team at USC, studying flow and creativity. Mm -hmm. um, so we're talking about flow, uh, just, just again, how, like how do you, you, I know you write a lot about flow, those listening in, you know, might kind of understand flow, but when you say flow, what exactly is flow? As, as uh, so it's a great question. It. Uh, let's start with just definitions, right? The technical definition, the scientific definition of flow is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. Now, more specifically, it refers to those moments of kind of rapt attention, total awareness, or total, total focus. When you get so focused on what you're doing on the task at hand, everything else just kind of vanishes. Your sense of self will disappear. Time passes strangely. You won't even notice, right? Five hours will go by in like five minutes. And throughout, all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. Um, so that's... Mm. Right, that's the definition of flow. When I talk about flow, because I work on the neurobiology of flow, I work on what goes on in the brain and the body when we're in flow, I am actually talking about a very distinct change to neurobiological function. Certain parts of the brain are turning on, certain parts of the brain are turning off, brainwaves are doing something very specific, neurochemicals are doing something very specific, and your physiology is also doing something very specific. So when I'm talking about flow um, and this state of consciousness, I'm talking about a very, very specific set of occurrences in the brain and body. Well, what, 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 what have you noticed is occurring in the brain and body when, when you talk about flow, brainwaves, so physiology? Let's talk, about, let's talk about the kind of the most potent kind of neurobiology yes. under flow. So under normal conditions, where you are right now, me and you are talking, our prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that's right behind our forehead, is very active. Now, this is a really powerful, potent part of your brain that governs executive function, logical, linear thinking, long-term planning. Your sense of morality lives there. Your sense of willpower lives there. In flow, this portion of the brain starts to shut down. It's actually an efficiency exchange. Uh -huh. The brain has a limited energy budget and it's always trying to conserve energy. So as you dial up, I need more energy for focus on the task at hand, the brain says, oh, okay, let's shut down non-critical structures. A lot of those structures are in the prefrontal cortex. So this explains some of flow's really strange characteristics and some of how it impacts high performance. Let me give you an example. So when your prefrontal cortex shuts down, one of the things that happens is time passes strangely. I mentioned earlier that time seems to speed up. Sometimes in flow, it'll slow down. You'll get a freeze frame effect. You've been in a car crash or seen the matrix, what they call bullet time, right? Um, that happens because time is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. It's a network. And as part nodes in that network go down, we can't perform the calculation. So past, present, and future collapse 
into a single point in time that people talk about as the eternal present. Psychologists talk about it as the deep now. It's just the present mm-hmm. moment, right? Now, this has a very big impact on performance. For example, most of our fears are things that happened in the past that we'd like to avoid in the present, or there are things that might, could, maybe happen in the future that we're trying to steer around from the present. If I remove Mm. past and future, anxiety levels plummet. In fact, neurobiologically, stress hormones get flushed out of your system when this happens. Um, That Mm. has a huge impact on performance. Same thing happens to your sense of self. Self is another calculation all over the prefrontal cortex. So as your prefrontal cortex gets quiet, right, as it shuts down, we lose our sense of self. This is a big deal because with our sense of self, we lose our inner critic, that nagging, always on, defeatist voice in your head. So as a result, that that voice gets very, very quiet. So we experience this emotionally as as liberation, as freedom. It's an enormous joy. We are actually getting out of our own way. But creativity, for example, we've been talking about that earlier, spikes enormously because you're no longer doubting every one of your need ideas. You're just going with it, Mm. right? Risk-taking as well goes way up, really critical for entrepreneurship, for example, right? So mm-hmm. that's, just one, that's just one example of something that's going on in the brain. And this, uh, by, by the way, mm-hmm. this is uh, not my work. It was a guy named Arne Dietrich at Georgia Tech who first uh, proposed this hypothesis. And then it was Charles Lim, a, uh, a neurologist at Johns Hopkins University, who did the FMR, fMRI work that confirmed it. Um, and other work mm-hmm. has been done since then. But... Um, mm-hmm. Got it. Can we at will? I mean, is, are there things or practices or specific yeah, so things? So at will is at will is tricky. Uh, first of all, yes, we know flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. So uh, the answer is yes, and and the easy answer, and you've had this experience. So there's something known as so when the prefrontal cortex shuts down, it's called transient, meaning temporary hypofrontality. Hypo, H-Y-P-O, it's the opposite of hyper. It means to slow down, to shut down, to deactivate. And frontality is the prefrontal cortex. So there's something called exercise-induced transient hypofrontality. And you've had this experience. You've mm-hmm. gone for a run. You've gone for a walk. You've gone to the gym. Yeah. And about 20, 25 minutes in, your brain starts to get really quiet, right? Um, mm-hmm. It just calms down. You're basically tired it, da- tired it out, and you need more energy for focus. So you can artificially induce, you, or you can temporarily induce transient hypofrontality this way. Um, so that's the front end of a flow state. There's more things going on after that, but that's, uh, that's a very important first step. Mm. Are there any other flow triggers? You, you said flow triggers a few times, and I'm curious, are there any other, uh, like if I wanted to be a master of flow, like uh, alchemy, things like so exercise? Or, there, yeah. are, uh, there are 12 individual triggers, 12, uh, 10 group triggers that we know about, and we talked about some of these earlier. So let's mm-hmm. break it down really easily. Flow follows nice. focus. It only shows up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. So that's what all the triggers do. Mm-hmm. They drive attention to the present moment. If I were to say it more formally, if I were to say it uh, neurobiologically, I would say flow triggers do one of two things. They either push norepinephrine or dopamine into our system. Both of these are neurochemicals. They do a lot of different things in the brain. One of the main things Mm -hmm. they do is they drive focus and attention into the present moment. So a lot of the triggers drive norepinephrine or dopamine. If they don't do that, they lower cognitive load. Cognitive load is all the crap you're trying to think about at once. It's everything you're holding in your brain at one time. Even if you don't even know you're holding on to it, right? It's that that, the suit you got to pick up at the dry cleaners later that's sort of hovering Mm -hmm. in the back of your consciousness, right? 
all that stuff is taking up weight. It's taking up space and it's using energy. So if I lower cognitive load, right, if I make you, if you're concerned about less things, I've lowered anxiety a little bit and I've given you more energy to pay attention to the present moment. So that's what these triggers do. And you actually named a couple of them earlier. So we were talking about creativity, pattern recognition, which is underneath creativity when you're linking ideas together. Pattern recognition drives dopamine into your system, and you've had this experience. You've done a crossword puzzle or a Sudoku, get an answer right. You felt that little rush of pleasure. That's dopamine. That's it, what it's doing is helping you focus more. It's a reward drug for getting the answer right, but it's also giving you more focus for the task at hand. You can also get dopamine from novelty, complexity, and unpredictability and risk. So all of those are also flow triggers because they will – drive attention in the present moment. And by risk, I don't just mean physical risk, though that's very useful. Emotional risk, psychological risk, social risk, all these things drive dopamine. So there's a whole lot more triggers to go into, but that's a you know a quick smattering. And what we see with flow, high flow, you know, flow master is a weird term, but in, in high flow individuals, um, what we've seen is we've seen they sort of built their lives around these triggers and around routines that emphasize these triggers. Got it. Got it. Are there any specific routines that you have in terms of how you've structured your life uh, as a writer, journalist, speaker? I mean, I'm just curious more on a personal level. Yeah, so I mean, most important important flow trigger is complete concentration in the present moment, right? Uninterrupted concentration. So... And the research, by the way, shows that to maximize flow, but like 90 to 120 minute periods of concentration are the minimum of uh-huh. what's required. So when we work with companies and, and at the Flow Research Collective, we worked with everybody from kind of the U.S. Special Forces uh, through executives at Google and Morgan Stanley and thousands of individuals. Uh, so when we work with organizations, companies, whatever, the first thing we do is we go into them and say, look, if you can't hang a sign on your door, this is fuck off, I'm flowing, can't do this work. You've got to be able to turn off all distractions. So you ask about routine. I start writing every day at 4 a.m. And 4 a.m.? 4 a.m., oh. yeah. I get up very early, and I start writing. And I write minimum 4 to 8, 4 to 8.30 every day. Um, and my cell phone is off, my email. And I, all this stuff is off the night before. So it's not even like everything is turned off. So when I come in, Already, my the document that I'm working on is open on my computer. I put things in focus view. There's no lights in my office, actually. Um, so it's mm. pitch black, um, and all I have is the words. Um, and, you know, mm. that's how I start my day every day. Wow. Cool. Yeah, and that, that's, that's, and this is like daily, Stephen. This is pretty much every day. I mean, is this, is this, for over 20, for over 25 years. Yeah. I mean, is there, I mean, do you have a day where you feel like, fuck it, I, don't, I just uh, can't be bothered today? Well, okay, so I don't feel like I, it. There, what do you do when you don't feel like it? There is no, there's, so first of all, there's no, there's no fuck it for two reasons, I think. One, <laughs> I get up at 4 a.m. no matter what, right? So I could, I could say fuck it, but like I would have, even if I get hellaciously drunk the night before mm. and, you know, stay up till 2 o'clock in the morning, my body's going to wake up at four. Maybe it'll wake up at five. Yeah. If I take a sleeping pill, I might get an extra hour. So my body wakes up immediately. And, you know, I always tell people, I write to save my life. 
You know what I mean? Like I, wow. the, my brain is not always my best friend, and I wanna I wanna go from bed to computer fast enough that my brain can't even turn on and start thinking. I don't even want to deal. Wow. I just wanna I wanna just put it into the work. So it's not even it's non negotiation it's not even a negotiation. There's not even not a negotiation. Like a choice to have it not be a choice, right? I mean that's just how you Well that's I mean, by the way, I foundational high performance one oh one. And this goes all William James, first godfather of psychology, godfather of American psychology, mm-hmm. right wrote first the very first psychology textbook in existence. Um and that first psychology textbook starts with a chapter on habits. James thought we were habit machines. And he was right, right? We are habit machines. And so, you know, very famous William James quote, uh, and he's actually paraphrasing Aristotle, but it's James who gets the credit for it, is if you sow an action, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a, reap yes. a character. If you sow a character, you reap a destiny. Absolutely. So habits are phenomenal. I always say, you know, I've spent most of my career studying what does it take to do accomplish the impossible, right? Individuals uh, in all walks of life, whether it's business or technology or athletics or take your pick, who have accomplished the impossible. Paradigm shifting, breakthroughs, nothing is ever the same again, nobody believed it was possible kind of stuff. And invariably, if you spend time with people who've accomplished the impossible, their lives look pretty goddamn boring. It looks Mm. like they wake up in the morning They got 10 items on their checklist. They do all of them. They're excellent at all 10 of them. They, you know, hang out with their girlfriend or wife or or husband or whatever afterwards, have a little social time. They have some kind of active recovery, meditation, yoga, sauna, Epsom back massage, take your pick. They maybe watch a little TV or read a book and go to sleep and do it again. That's what peak performance looks like under the hood. And the difference... Mm is they do it every day, every week, every month, every year, over and over yes. and over and over again, right? That mm-hmm. that tends to be the major difference. Mm. Yeah, that, that consistency for sure. And it, it, a lot of times I find it's, it's also some of the small things that they do every single day that uh, may not seem to make a difference in the moment, but I think it's, it's, it's absolutely... It's compound interest, right? Yes. Like you're trying to get... Five percent better today. Five percent better tomorrow. Right? Like, and, and, but where you start to notice it is years in. And I talk about it as what I call the habit of ferocity. The, be, the best top performers I know all have the habit of ferocity. And what that is is sort of a way to automatically and instinctively rise to any challenge long before mm-hmm. they even have, think about rising to any challenge. And the way you know you have the habit of ferocity is somebody, your wife, your friend, whatever, says, hey, what'd you do this week or what'd you do this month or what'd you do today? And you start listing all the stuff that you've just pulled off and you're amazed by the list. You're like, holy crap, how did I do all that? That's the habit of ferocity. And that's the momentum, that's the compound interest that comes when you're doing this stuff day after day, week after week, year after year. And it's not always sexy. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's not always sexy, but it's that it's that daily consistency that makes this huge difference. In terms of uh, being a writer and being on this path as a journalist, um, you said for 30 years you've, 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 this has been what you've been doing. Was there a time where, and I know you, you love it and you write daily, it's not an option, but was there ever a time where you felt like, let's say, 
giving up. Uh, maybe it was difficult. You weren't making a lot of money. You, you just your books weren't. No one was buying. You just you just felt like throwing it in. And I'm curious, in let's say a dark moment of your life uh, or career, what what kept you going? What kept you swinging? So showing I, up. I mean, the writing is the reward for me. So I'll give you an example. I spent three mm. years in bed with mm. Lyme disease. Um, oh, and wow. during that time, I uh, I was violently ill. I, I was so it was in so much pain physically that I couldn't walk across a room. Um, I was crippled. Wow. Mentally, it was worse. <laughs> I brain fog, uh, hallucinations, lost my ability to spell, dyslexic, lost my memory. So like short term and long term. So I couldn't read because I, I wouldn't remember what happened at the beginning of the sentence by the time I got to the end of it. And I was sort of clear headed for 20 minutes to 40 minutes a day, if I was lucky. I used mm. that 20 minutes to 40 minutes a day that I had um, to write a novel. And wow. the novel's no good. It's sitting in a drawer. It's not, it, it will never be published because I was out of my fucking mind when I was writing the thing, right? It's terrible. It's, it's massive work. But like you have to understand, I didn't call my friends. I didn't call my family. I didn't work to pay my bills. I didn't, wow. I did none of the things that other people would write. I, I, um, I wrote, I always tell people, people will come up to me and I'm, I'm very lucky this way, but people come up to me all the time and say, wow, thank you so much. Your, your book changed my life. It, it, it really saved my life. Thank you so much. And I always say, look, that's you. I wrote the mm. book to save my life, right? Whatever it does for you, that's great. But like my goal was to save my life. And that's, you know, I always say with my books, when my editor is happy, like I'm done. I'm on to the next project. Um, wow. I, you know, last Tango in cyberspace came out this week. It launched day or last mm. week launched day. Um, and you know, I did, I think 17 interviews over the course of that day, really long day. And in between the interviews, I was working on my new book with Peter Diamandis. And that's what I, you know mm. what I mean? Cause I wanted to focus on what was next, not on what was happening. Mm. So, I mean, do you not, I mean, save at the moment? I mean, what, what about that? How does that factor into your just, I'm you know, fully enjoying the moment? The moment. Like, yeah, I, that. I'm that's terrible at it. Yeah, I'm really bad at it. Um, my, I, my best friend <laughs> is the guy who, he's the one who, he'll be like, so what happened this week, blah, 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 and I'll, and I'll fill him in. And he'll just be like, stop, shut, shut up. Just, look, we're going to stop right there. Because he knows I will just blow right through um, and by the way, let's be clear. The reason I'm going right through the triumphs without trying to celebrate them too much is I've learned that the highs are just as much of a problem to consistent peak performance as the lows. First of all, every high you have is always followed by a low. That's just neurobiology. So there's no way around it. I have also found that when you ride those those highs too high, especially as a is a book writer. So when you have a book come out, you go out and book tour. I don't know what your experience was like, but in, in my experience in, in the, you know, I guess it's nine books at this point, um, book tours are really weird. They're really lonely and you do nothing but talk about yourself for yeah. three months at a time. And when you're done, your ego is colossally blown out of proportion. You're totally out of touch with reality. Anybody who loves you at that point can barely stand you. My wife wants to leave me. <laughs> and it takes, and the crash is really bad. 
So I learned a long time ago, don't ride the highs too high. They're not, it's, they're mm. just, and, and, and for good, by the way, the same neurochemicals that underpin those highs underpin flow. So if I'm wasting it on a, on a feel-good high moment of triumph, I'm going to have less of the neurochemicals I need to produce flow. And I'd yeah. rather have the flow, honestly. I'd rather yeah. be able to turn it into more creativity, more productivity, more something else. Um, I really like what you say was, was that the writing is the reward, you know, that, that, that the process. The, that's why you do it. And uh, – I, I don't point. like to do very many things. I like to hurl mm. myself down mountains at high speeds on skis, on snowboards, on mountain bikes. I like to surf. I like to do a handful of other action sports. And I like to write. Mm. I like to hang out with my dogs mm. and my and, and my friends and my family. And, and, you know, it's very – my life, I don't I – like I think one of the things that people don't often do is make a list of all the things that really matter to them and what – like and. When I made that list and looked at it, I was like, oh, wow, there's like six or seven things that are really important to me. And everything else I'm not particularly interested in. So I'm going to focus on those mm-hmm. things. Mm. That's great. That's great. Um, just one, one more thought about writing. And you might have, this might have been, we may have touched on it based on what you've said, but I'm curious. Because I think one thing that often stops people from, okay, writing putting oneself out there, sharing one's voice or gifts with the world in some way, shape or form, whether it's through writing or a book or film or videos or what have you, is this sort of need for uh, validation or fear of getting someone's approval or not. And I think uh, it, it often hijacks people's creativity. Is, is there anything, I mean, you know, writing is, I think, a very vulnerable thing as well. I know you said you do it for yourself and maybe that's the secret. Uh, is is there anything that you found that helped you move through just this well, thing for validation yeah, that you I have mean, as human beings? So, so one, figure out who you're trying to impress, right? Like uh-huh. I, when I'm writing, I my best friend is also my editor. He's my friend, so he reads almost everything. Like I want to impress him. I want to impress my mm-hmm. wife. There's a handful of other right. There's a handful of opinions that really matter to me. Most of the rest of it, I don't – I really don't care. Um, I don't mm-hmm. read my critics very often. Um, I don't pay attention. I like – I – when the book is – when the writing is done, I, I want to move on to the next project. This is not to say I won't do the necessary marketing, PR, all the stuff that goes with it, right? Like writing a book is half the battle because the – advertising and the marketing and the book tour and everything else is is equally for me it's way more it's as it takes as much time and it's much harder because it's not my yes. sweet but it's not my favorite thing to do um mm-hmm. in fact uh i will tell you that we just uh we just finished uh today actually the, the last tango cyberspace my novel came out and i did a pre-sale campaign and I really don't like pre-sale campaigns. They make me, I have uneasy <laughs> feelings about email blasts and, and all, like I have a big yeah. list and I use it, but like, so this campaign, I decided I was going to try to run, you know, as, as well as I could run a campaign. So a lot of mm. the emails were incredibly funny. Um, there was a mm. lot of comedy. There were times that I'm not even selling the book. I'm just making you laugh along the way kind of yeah. time. And, 
it took writing writing that sequence. You know, it, it so much time went into that mm. kind of stuff. So you got to there's still that, of course. <clears throat> but I try not to. Once it's out, right? I put all this time into the marketing. I want to do a great job, but like I don't. The, even the, the response letters that come from the letters that I put out, my team gets them. I don't want to see them. Mm. My job is mm. to do the writing. I don't like that. Mm. I draw a very clear line on it, which is, look, I, I'm harder on myself than anybody could possibly ever be as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I, you know, what I, and I am always, always, always striving to be better and striving to take on more challenges and grow and learn and what, right? So like, there are people who you know whose opinions I want and things like that, but you know, as a general rule, um, it's not that's not where I put my focus. And if you put yeah. your focus there, it's just going to crush you, right? You got to get free of the good opinions of other people. Yeah, I like that. That's key. I think a lot of times we focus on getting free of like people's negative opinions, but your point is we got to we got to get free of the good opinions so we can Although, stand in. You know, Does it matter? Yeah, I mean, both. I mean, by, by the way, good opinions for a writer mm. can be deadly, right? You have a first yes. book come out and it goes incredibly well for you and people love it. I guarantee you sit down to write your second book and the first thing you're going to think is, holy fuck, how do I do this again? Yeah. Right? I fell yeah. in love with West of Jesus, my second book. And I had, it took me like eight or nine months after West of Jesus to get to my next book because I thought West of Jesus was a freaking masterpiece and how was I ever going to do, right? Like I was all up in my head about it and I had, you know, it had it had done remark, it had garnered a tremendous amount of attention upon launch, um, was on the cover of a lot of book reviews and things like that. And I just, I wrote the high and I, and I fed into it and it, that was actually crippling to me. Um, mm -hmm. So. Got it. Wow. Very cool. Now you you wrote uh, and then you said you're writing another book with Peter Diamandis. I mean, I love Bold and Abundant, two of my you know favorite books. I mean, amazing books, inspiring books. I mean, you guys outlined a lot. Um, as you look at the world today, Stephen, and uh, when you see where we've been, where we're at as a humanity, and as you look into the future, I'm curious from your perspective what. Uh, what scares you, what concerns you uh, in terms of where we're going, but what, 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 what excites you? I mean, share your thoughts. So it's interesting because a lot of that answer is actually in my novel. So Last Tango in Cyberspace uh -huh. is a near-term future thriller, basically. It's a cyberpunk novel. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons I wrote it is people have been asking me sort of the question you just asked me. Right, a lot. I've heard that. I've heard versions of that question for years, and I've written over the past, I don't know, since 2011. I think I've written four books on technology: Bold, Abundance, Tomorrowland, and now Last Hang on Cyberspace. And this book with Peter is going to be my fifth. And if for a certain amount, Stealing Fire, there's a bunch of future tech in there as well, right? So it's essentially five books or four books. And the difficulty with those books is. Because I'm trying to tell you about, hey, this technology is accelerating, and this is what it's doing. This is what it means. I got to go sequentially. I got to go one tech at a time, one innovation at a time. But that's not the future. The future is everything at once, right? It's all this stuff. And Ray Kurzweil 
head of engineering at Google, right, runs their AI department, co-founded yeah. Singularity University with Peter, and probably the best predictive futurist we've ever had in the history of the world, right? He, he mm -hmm. doesn't tend to miss because he's using exponential growth charts and mathematics to kind of plot his predictions. And he has argued that the pace of change is so quick right now and acceleration, our acceleration itself is accelerating. We can talk about why if you want to, um, that we are going to experience 20,000 years worth of technological change before the end of the century. What that means is in the next wow. 81 years, we are going birth of agriculture to the industrial revolution twice. That oh, is goodness. a massive amount of acceleration, right? And mm -hmm. I wanted to take a look at what is that like five years from now? What is the world going to look like just five years from now? Um, so that's what I did in Last Tango in Cyberspace. I took everything I knew about where we were going and put it together into one world. And I wrote a story in the middle of that world so I could get to live in that world a little bit and see what it was like and see what it felt like and you know really get a sense of it. So I think that's one of the things um, that Last Tango is, is really about. And some of the feedback I'm getting from people is really like, holy crap, I had no idea. Like I'd read Bold Abundance and Tomorrowland and Stealing Fire, but I had no, I didn't get it came together in this one. I was like, I know. Give me some examples. Like, let me give you, what, what, let me give like, you what, what does the world look like? So the things that I'm, uh, I, I'll tell, uh, we, we can come back to what I think is really important, but like some of the mm -hmm. stuff that I'm paying attention to that I think is really neat. Um, let's just talk about the transportation revolution that's going on right now, right? We know we've got autonomous cars rolling out onto our streets this year, 2019 is when they start hitting the streets, right? We've got, already got Google's got a test fleet in Pittsburgh and a couple other cities, and they're coming out. Every major car company has an autonomous program going. Uber's got an autonomous fleet coming out, Lyft, et cetera. That sounds – that's crazy. Oh, my God, robotic cars, and that's going to change car ownership. It's going to change a lot of things. Elon Musk's Hyperloop is coming right on the back of it. This is a high-speed train that can go Los Angeles to L.A. in 20 minutes – or excuse me, uh, Las Vegas to L.A. in 20 minutes. That's huge. Wow. And, but here's the crazy one. 2023, I was, Uber is releasing their first flying cars. Flying autonomous wow. taxis will be in L.A. and Dallas by, and probably Dubai and a couple of other cities by 2023. So that's a massive, that's a massive transportation revolution. And that's already happening, Change. right? 2023. 2023, that's it. That's, it's coming. It's, 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 yeah, it's I mean, happening. Yeah, like, and you've got to understand, like, let's just talk about what this means because it doesn't just mean, oh, wow, I don't have to wait in traffic anymore. It means that the size mm. of the dating pool, the size of your son's school district, all mm. those kinds of things are massively shrunk, right? What used to take... Mm. Five hours in a car, eight hours in a car, now takes 15 minutes in the train. You can go Los Angeles to yeah. San Francisco in, you know, in the same way that you go Brooklyn to Manhattan, right? Like that's what we're mm. talking about now. So distances start to really shrink. That has a huge mm. – you're changing demographics. You're changing sociologies. You're mixing cultures, right? Yeah. Well, Nevada and, and California, I li I'm moving I, – I live in northern New Mexico. I'm moving to Nevada. That is a very different place than Los Angeles. You know what I mean? Like blending mm -hmm. those two cultures together, you've got interesting things coming. So that's one of the things I'm paying attention to. When, it, when, when you ask what scares me, this is also in Last Tango. This is always what scares me. So when I wrote Abundance with Peter, when we wrote it, there's a – and this line is 
this line is in the book, and it's the thing that people tend to gloss over, but it's really at the kind of core of our message. We believe that accelerating technology gives us the power to solve all the world's grand challenges right now, but to pull it off, it's either abundance or bust in our mind. Like if we don't do this, mm. we don't think we survive the next hundred years. Um, and the one of the big reasons, and, and, and I always talk about this, it's one of my pet passion projects. A lot of it is environmental, but for example, the biodiversity crisis is if you talk to scientists and you say, what scares you the most out of every existential threat out there? What are you most scared of? And they will all say the biodiversity crisis, the loss of species, species die off. And the reason is the web of life isn't a metaphor. Species, species die. By the way, if you don't know what's going on, we are in the middle of what scientists call the sixth great extinction. The fifth one killed off the mm -hmm. dinosaurs. Species die off rates are a thousand times greater than normal. So depending on whose predictions you look at, by the end of the century, 50 to 70% of all the large mammals are gone. It's uh, beyond a crisis. So under, on top of all this biodiversity, plants, animals, ecosystems, sits what are known as ecosystem services. These are all the things the planet does for us for free. One of them, the one that everybody's familiar with, is climate stabilization. When you break climate stabilization, you get climate change, right? That's what we've done. And one of the reasons we've broken climate stabilization is we're destroying the web of life, right? Deforestation is a major driver of climate change, et cetera, et cetera. So there are 36 ecosystem services. They're all in as much jeopardy as climate change. We don't hear about them, but they're all in as much jeopardy. And if we can't preserve biodiversity, they're going to start to shut down. So recent research out of Stanford says that if we, we have three generations to stop the slide of biodiversity or we're going to pass a tipping point from which they don't think there's any way back. Wow. Wow. So what that's the one that scares me the most. And by the way, the core message at the heart of Last Tango in Cyberspace, despite the yes. fact that it's a book about future tech, is really what I call empathy for all, which is oh. uh, the books, a lot of the book is about empathy, which I think is one of our secret weapons um, in the fight for the environment, especially when, that I talk when, about. When you, say, when you say empathy for all, what, what do you mean by that? What I mean is most of us, right, we're, we're sort of we're hardwired, we're empathetic with our family, we're empathetic with our friends, maybe we're empathetic with mm -hmm. our, our tribe or our nation. Empathy for all means you've got to extend it to all people, then you've got to extend it to plants, animals, and ecosystems. And let me talk about why this is really important. So we have a perception problem in the modern world, which is the brain takes in a shit ton of data every second, different numbers. But uh, the, the numbers I like are 400 billion bits of information a second. Consciousness, what you can pay attention to, is about 2,000 bits. So the vast majority of everything is, is filtered out, right? And what you, what you see is stuff that's really, really critical to you, either really foundational to your survival, right, or it's something you can eat, something you can sleep with, so that kind of thing. That's most of what gets through. And the other, other things get, that get through are things that are attached to your goals, and things that you deem important. So big problem, uh, eco-psychology is the branch of psychology that studies how people interact with the natural environment. And there's 50 years worth of eco-psychology that says, hey, you live in a box and you stare at a box all day long. You stare at screens all day long, sit inside. Your brain 
because it's how it works. It's got to filter out stuff that's not important. Well, if you're living in boxes and you're staring at screens all day, what's not important is the natural world. So you stop noticing things like plants, animals, and ecosystems. So one of the great giant reasons we are in the middle of an enormous environmental crisis is most of us literally can't see the very thing we're trying to save. We don't perceive it. It just doesn't even get in. Steve, Steve, what can we do? What can, you know, those, for those listening in, how, Literally, how do we reconnect I mean, I, with like, So I, I, here's the, here, like, my wife and I were on a dog sanctuary, and this was something that I had to learn along the way. Um, but this is a really fun way to play this game. So if you have animals in your life, stop thinking of them as property. Stop thinking of it as a hierarchical relationship. Start treating the animals in your life as your own family. So I'll give you an example. We do uh, hospice care work and special needs work, and we've gotten lots of crazy dogs over the years. And we've done some work with feral dogs. Usually, if we get a feral dog or if we get a a dog from a, a really abusive situation, they're scared of men. So my wife will be able to do the work and the dogs will be terrified of me. And sometimes they'll come at me and charge me and bite me. And we had a, we had a dog named Misha who uh, bit me, tried to bite me every, almost every day for two years. And when you've got very kind of spazzed out, you know, stressed out animals, you can't turn around and scream at the dog for biting you as much as you want to, right? You can't lose your temper and lose your mind. And when I would, my wife would go ballistic, right? How can you, we're a dog rescue. How can you be angry at the dogs kind of thing? So, but this kept happening. I, this, I would get up to take a piss in the middle of the night and Misha would wake up and run and bite my ankle or something like that. And last thing you want to do is get bit at three o'clock in the morning when you try to take a piss. Really not fun, right? Um, and I was getting angrier and angrier and finally, I just had a sort of desperation. I was like, you know what? I'm going to treat Misha as if he was my brother, literally like my brother. Mm. And my brother was having a really bad day. He was having a nutty, right? I've seen my brother lose it, starts screaming, goes crazy. Okay, I'm going to pretend that when Misha's barking at me and trying to bite me, it's just my brother having a nutty. Yeah. And I'm going to treat him in the exact same way I would treat my brother or my mom or my – right? Mm. What's going to happen if you start doing that, if you make that shift within a couple of weeks, you're going to start noticing that you're noticing things about the animal in your life that you didn't see before. Why? Because Mm. empathy literally tilts perception. So that's why empathy is so important. Empathy widens perception. Once I decide to empathize with you, right, could be a person of a different color, different religion, different, right, across the border of species, plants, animals, you take your pick. Once you make the decision to kind of really try to empathize, what you're going to start doing is information is going to start coming through the brain's filter. You're saying, hey, I'm empathizing with this creature, whatever it is, take your pick, um, which means it's important to me. So don't hide this information to me, show it to me. And it's real. It, it, suddenly, you're going to find yourself living in a slightly different world. You can do it with plants. You could like take your pick. Just run the experiment in your own life and see how empathy impacts perception. Just after a couple of weeks, it's a really fun experiment to run. I love it. Empathy tilts perception. Empathy widens perception. Powerful concept. I'm excited excited to uh, read your new book now, Stephen. It sounds 
sounds fascinating. Last Tango. Yeah, you'll like, when I heard you say that you like Bald and Abundance, I was like, oh, yeah, oh, I read love, Last Tango. You, you'll you'll yeah, like it. I have it. no idea how much I love Bald and Abundance and shared it with everyone. It's, and also, Steve, I just want to thank you for coming on. This has been a really inspiring, fascinating interview. I really hope everyone, this is an interview with the amazing Stephen Kotler, author of some of my favorite books, Bold, Abundance, and now Lost Tango. Uh, just out now, Lost Tango in Cyberspace, which is a novel. Check it out. Final question, Stephen, and maybe you, you've shared some, but I'd I like to see if we can just streamline and send people off in a specific way. If there were three, if you were to look at your life, everything you've been through, lessons, relationships, ups, downs, writing, successes, failures, if there were three key life lessons or the most important things you feel you've learned in your life that if you could pass this on, to the next generation that you feel could evolve the next generation the most, your kids and grandkids, so forth. Uh, what would, what, how would you, what would the three keys that you would distill be that we pass on? I don't know if I've got three, but it could be more, but you know, I, I'm, hey. take, I'm, I'm going to take a random stab at three things that, yeah, I, go that I think are really important. One, you absolutely have to learn that fear is your friend. Your greatest joy, happiness, success play, uh, uh, lie on the other side of the things that scare you most. So what you see over and over again with the world's best performers is fear is their compass. Which way do I go next? Which way does the greatest challenge lies? What scares me the most? And one of the reasons is, just to go at it a little neurobiologically, is when you're scared of something, focus comes for free. So if you're going right at this thing that scares you, right, and you're trying to rise to the challenge, you don't have to do as much work to pay attention to focus or to put yourself into flow because focus comes for free. You're getting your biology to work for you rather than against you, which is one of the ongoing secrets of high performance. So that would be um, – that. that's my – the first one is you just got to learn how to make your nervous – to quote William James, you got to learn how to make your nervous system your ally and not your enemy. Um, is, is I think where I would start. The second one is you are never going to feel better in this world. You will never have an experience you like more than flow. Literally, we have 150 years of incredible psychology that says this is the experience that people like most on the planet. It's, this, is, this is the shit. So if you know that, you can build your life around flow. Because you're never going to find anything that is more meaningful, more important, right? Like it's not – it doesn't get any better. That is the upper spectrum of human possibility. And I think once you realize that, um, a lot of things start falling in line. Your priorities – it rearranges your priorities in a really kind of great way. And I think kind of the third thing is is where we started is that – High performance really is about the checklist. I'm going to do all my stuff today. I'm going to do all my stuff tomorrow. And and sort of one of the secrets, I always teach this to people. It's one of my first rules is never always keep your word. And I don't mean to other people. That's totally important and critical and don't lie and all that. Yes, very important. What I mean is to yourself. And so what I mean by that is, When I write a to-do list, if I put item one, write my new novel today or whatever it is, right, I have put it on my to-do list. I have given myself my word that I'm going to do this thing. So 
I always do it. It's not an option. I once I say it out loud, right? If I'm if I'm do, even same thing. If I'm doing business with you, or I'm work, working with my team. I tell my team this all the time, um, and it's actually uh, it's in one of our it's one of the kind of foundational rules in the Flow Research Collective is if you say it out loud, it's reality. You like if you you say it out loud. You have ownership of it. It means you're responsible for doing it, and I'm going to hold you responsible if you don't. Um, yeah. And that level of discipline, if you, if you say it out loud, if you make a promise, you always do it no matter what. And if you get into that habit, right, It what it does is it takes all the quivering out of it, right? The quibbling, the I can, should I do this? Should I not do No, I put it on my freaking to-do list. I have to do this because I have to always keep my word. And those are the things. It sounds so small, but yes, that's the compound interest, right? Like that's the compound interest. So I don't know if those are my top three, I love it. but those are three very yeah. important things. Thanks. Really important. Three, three key wisdoms from Stephen Kotler. Stephen, as we wrap up, is there, is there like one simple, like practical homework assignment? I mean, you provided so much, but I would love people immediately to go like do one thing that might, they can have an experience of some sort. Is there like a, a homework assignment that you could assign for those listening in that they could immediately go do now? Well, so be careful in what I'm about to tell you to do. But if you're yes. doing this and you're like, well, what have I ever been in flow? What is flow? How do I do that kind of thing? So I do every day after I finish writing, I take my dogs for a hike in the backcountry and I do a very specific hike that most of the time will put me into a flow state. And here's what I do. I walk for about 25 minutes. I usually walk uphill. If you can't walk uphill, walk slightly faster than normal for about <clears throat> 25 minutes. Walk until it gets quiet upstairs, okay, until you have, you'll notice because you'll start that your thoughts will stop spiraling as much. So you're now, you've just kind of put yourself at the edge of flow. You're now in a low-grade transient hypofrontality state. Then I, what I do because I live in the mountains and I can do this is I run up a cliff face or run up a mountain um, for about five to seven minutes uphill as hard as I can. Um, sometimes it's running, sometimes it's hiking, you know, whatever I do, but I'm going uphill for about five minutes and I'm going, what you're doing there is you're starting to work with the neurochemistry that's underneath flow. So you put, you shut off your brain. Now by going uphill hard, you're hurting yourself. So your brain is releasing anandamide endorphins, which are painkillers. Those are also chemicals that are in flow. When you get to the top of wherever you are, turn around and run back downhill and try to get your feet moving slightly faster than your body, right? Where you're on the edge of falling, but you're just sort of running. That's going to, that's risk. You'll get dopamine. By the time you're back down, you're probably in a low-grade flow state, and then you can kind of walk out and get back to work, and you can bring that flow state into work. And we know, by the way, you asked about creativity earlier, and here's why you might want to do this. The heightened creativity that shows up in flow, and this is Teresa Mobley's work at Harvard, and I just killed – I slaughtered her last name. I can am amiable Amable I always I always screw it up. Anyways, she discovered that the heightened creativity that shows up in flow will outlast a flow state by a day, sometimes two. So what I'm doing is, A, I've, just, I've worked for four hours, right? I need to give my brain a break. I also need to go look at some different vistas and, 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 and chill out and you know, get some exercise. All that stuff is really good. But I'm doing this flow walk because it resets my system, puts me into flow, my own flow state, and I've got heightened creativity throughout the day. Which is awesome. Awesome. So awesome. Awesome homework. 
and don't trip, by the way. And if you can't run up, if you can't, if you don't have hills, right, I would suggest running really hard, like running sprints, 30-second sprint, 10-second walk, 30-second sprint kind of stuff, like a Kataba set for about four or five minutes. And then if you can, run through a forest, just sprinting and dodging trees, right? Something like that or... You know, you can do that instead of running downhill. You just got to up the danger level a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Love it. There, there, is, there is a big trail behind me where I'm living in, uh, in Phoenix, Stephen. I'm going to try it perhaps tomorrow. Oh, morning. you know, it's, we used to do this all the time. I lived in Phoenix years ago with, uh, with uh, Camelback. So we used to go, oh, okay. and, right? We'd, we'd, we'd walk up Camelback. We'd get like, you know, Sprinting distance from the top, then we'd jog, we'd run to the top, and then we'd run back down. Um, awesome. And uh, that worked. That worked. It's perfect. on. It is on now, folks. You heard it. The homework from Stephen Kotler. Uh, we'll call it the slow walk. I would love for you to send me an email, Coopblackson at coopblackson.com. Let me know uh, your key takeaways from today's uh, awesome episode, and let me know how your slow walk went. We'd love to hear from uh, as many of you as possible. Stephen, I have really loved this interview. Thank you so much for your generosity. Uh, I know that the last tango in cyberspace is out now. A novel, folks, please go to Amazon, check it out. Let me know how you enjoy this amazing book as well, Last Tango in Cyberspace. Also, Stephen, what's the best way people can find out about you and your work and connect with your events? And, and yeah, stuff. Easy, your easiest, thing, easiest thing is stephencotler.com. So S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R.com. And if you go there, uh, under the words tab, you'll find a video page. So there's got to be three, four hours of content, free content alone on that video page. Also, check out the rabbit hole, um, which you'll also find mm. in that bar. And so there's a rabbit holes are literally like you want to know more about flow. Here's, you know, six videos, a couple of articles and whatever, and they're curated and, and arranged in a specific way. You want to know about future tech. There's a rabbit hole for future tech. You want to know about, you know, take your pick, neuro, the neuropsychology of mystical experiences. There's a rabbit hole for that. So there's a lot of fun to be had on the website. Awesome. Awesome. This has been really fantastic. Stephen Kotler, everyone, the amazing Stephen Kotler, author of uh, bold abundance, stealing fire, and now lost and going cyberspace. Folks, told you this was going to be an amazing soul talk. Uh, please download it, subscribe, share it with your friends and family, post on social media, and I look forward to connecting with you in the next episode of Soul Talk next week. Much love. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.